This is Rabbanit Leah Sarna and Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. Shalom and welcome to the Straw Hat. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the beautiful Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. This week's episode comes to you in four parts. First, we'll have a discussion about the three weeks, which will begin this Sunday. It's a period of mourning leading up to Tisha B'Av. Second, we'll be talking about the Parsha, Parshat Balak. Third, we have a halacha segment about the usage of umbrellas on Shabbat. And fourth, we'll have an interview with our vice president for the house, Daniel Shiat. So we're coming up on the fast day of Shivas Arba Tammuz, the 17th of Tammuz. This year celebrated on the 18th of Tammuz because of Shabbat. Um, and that opens up this period of the three weeks in which we start to get into mourning for the first and second temples. And it's kind of a hard time to relate to because that was a long time ago, because we now have a state of Israel. How should we be thinking about this period of the calendar? Well, I, th- I think you, you are absolutely correct. It is hard to, it is hard. And that's exactly what this season is about. Because it's hard, we, we need a season to uh, cultivate that sense of mourning for the Beit HaMikdash, for the temple, and, and all that it its absence symbolizes and, and signifies. Rav Soloveitchik spoke many times over many years and wrote about a a number of locations, the comparison between the mourning, God forbid, for a close relative, where the mourning practices are most acute immediately following the death. And then over the course of weeks and months, and uh, et cetera, we we are rehabilitated and and reacclimated into normal social interactions. When it comes to mourning, something that happened centuries ago, we need a season uh, to get into that uh, that that sad mournful mood and to really uh, contemplate what it means to live in a world without a Beit Hamikdash, where uh, so many of the mitzvot of the Torah are inaccessible to us, where uh, are, where we're taught that the absence of the Beit Hamikdash symbolizes uh, symbolizes that more than it signifies actually uh, the estrangement between uh, God and humanity, and which I think also symbolizes uh, our estrangement as human beings from one another. Uh, and so there is a lot to mourn, uh, but it's not something that comes. And quickly and easily and naturally, we, we need a, a time of the year, a season, uh, to make that possible. And I'll just, something else about seasons, I, I think there is, you can divide, um, you know, among Jewish people who take Judaism somewhat seriously, like I'm sort of mm-hmm. beyond people who are like classically observant, people who take Judaism seriously, uh, there are those who take it seriously enough that they really live according to the Jewish calendar, mm-hmm. uh, right? The holiday season is like a season for us and, and people similar to us, right? And, and the whole course of the year has a real narrative arc of holiday season and the three weeks leading up to Shabbat, right? These, these times of the year feel really differently. And of course, the course of the week as well, Shabbat and weekday. There's a, there's a rhythm to the week for those who live according to uh, a Jewish calendar. And, and it's funny that the calendar is meant to kind of determine our emotions. There's something almost um, difficult or foreign about that, right? Like, oh, this day of the week, I'm supposed to feel this way. And yet the answer to that is kind of yes. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. I think, I think I'm making a, a somewhat... Different, different point. That's true, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there are like there are also there are mitzvot that interact with our emotional life, and that mm-hmm. that's that that is true. I think uh, that's also true that if you live according to a calendar, that you you feel that. I mean, that's true. I think for uh, you know people aren't Jewish. They have there's like the start of the school year, and there's mm-hmm. like the summer, and that, right these the, these uh, the quote unquote holiday season, right? The, the, these times of the year feel differently. Uh, weekends are different than weekdays for like everyone. People, for everyone, right? Yeah. And there's even even you know there have been studies that uh, have looked at um, people who are unemployed for extended periods of time, 
they actually like are happier on the weekend than they are on the week there's the, right? because, you know but part of it's because like all their friends go back to work on Monday right and, and they're mm. there so so there, there's mm-hmm. a like there, there's a contour to like time is not uh, undifferentiated okay uh, mm. Judith Shulovitz writes about this in a really interesting way in her book about uh, about the Sabbath from a sort of broader uh, perspective but um, certainly true for observant Jews we have we live according to the calendar so the summer uh, leading up to Shabbat feels really differently, and then after Shabbat, it's a whole different uh, feeling to the summer. I think for Jews who, even those who take Judaism seriously, but but a little bit, but not as seriously enough that they uh, live according to the Jewish calendar, they, they have replaced it with uh, the Jewish life cycle. So mm-hmm. there are people who will like seek out uh, a rabbi or a synagogue for uh, the birth of a child, for a bar mitzvah, for for a wedding, for a funeral, but but they're not otherwise living according to the Jewish calendar. They've replaced it with a Jewish lifestyle. I think that's a really life inter- cycle. Life cycle. Thank you. Uh, I think it's an interesting um, replacement, and I think they're missing something. I think the mm-hmm. calendar re- really does shape life. So this time of year, this as we go into uh, the three weeks uh, from the the fast of the seventeenth of Tammuz observed on the 18th of Tammuz, uh, until the beginning of the month of Av, we Ashkenazi Jews refrain from occasions that would cause us to recite the Shekhyanu blessing. So we don't make major purchases like new cars, new homes, uh, fancy clothing, expensive clothing, uh, and we don't have weddings uh, during this time of year, and uh, people don't have haircuts, or you know, um, many don't shave as well. Uh, leading up to and sort of this this growing um, morning practices, expanding morning practices that will uh, become most severe of, of all on Tisha B'Av itself. There's something interesting also in that um, Rav writes famously about how the three weeks match up to parts of the mor- uh, the morning um, periods that you observe after the death of a loved one. And it's kind of interesting how the Jewish calendar and the Jewish life cycle do kind of overlap yeah, yeah, or, or yeah. bring up the same sorts of things um, in different ways. But that and, and I, I wonder whether um, people who have experienced that type of personal loss can then tap into those emotions to experience national loss and that actually maybe it's a time to kind of tap into what was that emotional experience like when I lost my parent sibling mm-hmm. um, and, and to, to kind of realize that those those emotions help us to feel more connected as a nation the way that in some ways those emotions in our personal life cycle might have helped us feel more connected to our family. That's interesting. Um, Rav Nachum Rabinovich um, makes a counterpoint in one of his chuvot in Siach uh, Nachum, he says that uh, the, the Talmudic um, understanding Ein Chinuch Lavelut, we don't educate mm-hmm. towards mourning, uh, only applies to mourning the Beit HaMikdash, mm. uh, but not to loved ones, we, we, not to relatives. We do uh, hope that by the time our children become adults, uh, there will be a Beit HaMikdash, and there won't mm-hmm. be a need for them to be educated in mourning for its absence, mm-hmm. whereas we expect our children to mourn their loved ones. That is part of being a human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we do, there are, there is Chinuch for Avelut for, for relatives, just not for the Beit HaMikdash. That's an interesting... Uh, and you've been doing that Chinuch uh, every day when you're teach when you've been teaching yes, that's uh, right. a safer about Avelut. That's right. <laughs> Because um, it, it is meaning the rules of mourning. You know, we we often talk about how oh, it's so crazy. You learn the rules of nida in like a month before your marriage, but actually, when you lose a, a loved one, you learn the rules of avilut overnight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that unless unless people really learn those rules in advance, it's, it can be very disorienting. And in some ways, I think you don't even maximize the potential of those rules unless you know them before a loved one passes. Away. Uh, absolutely, and I and I I think that also just means that. You know, parents when thinking about like what to what experiences to bring their children, like it's appropriate to bring a child, um, you know, 
obviously knowing the child and the age of the child and the relationship to the loved one, but to a funeral, I think it can be appropriate to bring a child to a funeral. It's certainly appropriate to bring a child to a shiva visit, and mm-hmm. um, and it's appropriate to be standing with your child when mourner's cottage is said in shul, and if you're saying it or you're not saying it, but like the ch- your child should know uh, why what's, is it said? what's happening and, and, and why it's important to preserve decorum, even for these final moments of shul when... Uh, people just a few rows around you are are saying kaddish. Like we we, we it is something we avoid thinking about, but we we do hope that our children will one day say kaddish for us. We need to model saying it and listening to others say it when when we're in shul together with our children. But the other thing, just to go back to the discussion about this time period, mourning for the temple. One of the things that I, I think that this time period helps us is that we often go through life without really thinking about how hard it is to be Jewish and the effects of anti-Semitism on our lives. And even when we, you know, go places and think like, do I want to wear a yarmulke or do I want to wear a baseball cap here? And that really, I think Jews who, who wear yarmulkes normally, that is something they think about not infrequently. Am I comfortable wearing my yarmulke here? I'm publicly identified as a Jew. Does that feel safe to me? Um, but we don't take the time to kind of step back and say like, it's crazy that we have to have that calculation all the time. Like, it is crazy that it's dangerous in this world to be Jewish. It is crazy that that I'm always worried about what it will mean to be on the street publicly identified as a Jew. And on Tisha B'Av, I think we really can step back. And, and Eicha opens up those questions for us of, God, what does it mean that we're your chosen people, and yet it's it's dangerous to be Jewish? Our synagogues are under attack. Um, and I think I think to say, like, it's healthy not to ask those questions all year round, but it's also healthy to, yes, have a place for them and to have a, a moment when we articulate them. And that that's very, like, psychologically healthy to give kind of an opening to that sort of speech and, and wondering and, and theological questioning and even anger there's a song that they um they teach kids in israel little kids in israel when they live in in areas um that are rocketed frequently like in steroid there's a song that they teach little kids you can watch videos of it on youtube it is like really crazy but it helps the kids articulate like where they feel fear in their Mm. bodies and they have to say it out loud like this is really scary to me i feel fear in my head in my torso in my whatever um and because there's something very very psychologically healthy about speaking about it And I wonder whether like this like deep Jewish trauma and, and, you know, like that trauma is not just in our heads. It's like in our epigenetics, it's like inherited, you know, for for Ashkenazi, for the Ashkenazi community, Holocaust trauma. But for the Sephardic and Edota Mizrach communities, like that trauma is just as present. Um, It's just, you know, it doesn't have the name Holocaust to go on it. It's just different kinds of trauma. Um, But, you know, your family that was incredibly wealthy in Baghdad and then got kicked out like that is equivalently kind of traumatic. And, And we carry those traumas with us and we don't. We don't speak about that's not you know it's not every week we give drushes about that trauma and then this time of year is where we're really encouraged like explore that trauma tap into it try and understand it try and actually really bring it to the fore of your emotional life so that the rest of the year you don't have to do that maybe yeah yeah so this week's parasha is parasha balak and it's an unusual <laughs> parasha because the uh the like if the action shifts away from the children of Israel making our way through the desert uh, to non-Jews and they are interactions sort of on the periphery of the story. It's like, a, um, I don't know if this were like a movie, like scene would end and all of a sudden cut to uh, the King Balak trying to hire Bilam, a local prophet for hire, to, to curse the Jewish people and, and his plan goes awry, okay? Uh, Bilam does not uh, uh, curse, but he blesses and very poignant, powerful, beautiful uh, poetry that is even incorporated into our tefillah and really into our um, uh, self-identity, actually, as Jews. So, so often echoes uh, Bilam's 
uh, Billum's blessings. Uh, and and uh, Billum, therefore, is a really interesting character. He is capable of like beautiful language and prophetic language even. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems to be a real prophet. We've even adopted some of his language into our daily right. Tefillah. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and, and yet he is. He comes to a violent end, uh, the Torah tells us, and, and Chazal, the rabbis, see him in, in very, very negative terms, and they go through the entire story uh, reading very, very closely, uh, finding real things, real elements of the story, uh, but, but all with a very, very negative valence, turning him into, portraying him as a, a, a particularly sinister and wicked uh, individual. That, that seems to be uh, one way that Chazal the rabbis read the Torah. Uh, the characters they liked, they really, really liked, and the characters they didn't, they really, really didn't like. And, and all of the sins that are kind of thrown in his head, you, mm-hmm. you see this with um, uh, Yaakov and Esav, where mm-hmm. uh, Yaakov, um, in the eyes of the rabbis, is an extreme, exceedingly pious and righteous person, and, and Esav is an exceedingly wicked person, guilty of uh, every sin imaginable. And the, the wicked people come to represent these other nations that op- have oppressed the Jews correct, throughout the correct, ages. Correct, 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 yes. Yeah, they're sort of typologies. I think Bilaam was understood uh, almost as a Jesus figure, actually, like a mm-hmm. non-Jew who... Um, Caused a lot of suffering. And, 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 but was wicked, right? Was prophetic, right. but wicked. Could do miracles, but, was, but ultimately mm-hmm. was a negative, uh, seen in a very negative light. Um, and, and that's... Uh, so that's an interesting way, angle, lens on which uh, Billam uh, w- w- was read. The truth is, though, if you read the chart carefully, he's not such a good figure. <laughs> he, mm-hmm. he, uh, he initially rejects the offer when, you know, I want you to curse the Jews. He says, no. But then they come back the next day with more money. And he says, well, let me, let me ask God again. So, <laughs> like, that's not a nice thing to do. You don't, you don't ask God again because they <laughs> offer there's you. Because more money. Because there's more money involved. Uh, and... Um, and God lets him go, but it seems kind of grudgingly. God says, you want to go? You're going to go. Okay. Like, I'm not going to stop you from doing this thing that you clearly want to do, which is generally... Which is kind of funny, actually. Well, it's generally how God operates in our lives. You really want to do something, God usually doesn't stand in the way, even if it's a negative thing. Right. I mean, God might say, like, that's prohibited. <laughs> okay. But fine. But right. If I want to eat a cheeseburger, there's not going to, like... Correct. But here, though, there is there is a, an intervention. God does stage intervention. There's an angelic uh, figure who stops... Uh, Billam's donkey uh, from from traveling, and the donkey seems to have more uh, perception initially than than, than Billam. Right, and uh, that's definitely meant to be in some ways humorous. But I I really love animals, and um, and so I've always really loved this donkey that has like kind of prophetic capabilities. <laughs> yeah, and then turns to him and says, "Listen, what are you like? I'm your faithful donkey. Like, what are you like? <laughs> yeah. what, what, what am I like? Clearly, if I'm stopped, it's for a reason. Like, what are you hitting me for?" I kind of wonder since Shrek came out whether <laughs> that those scenes have been like forever kind of changed for people. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Well, I, right. I wonder. Okay, n- n- you're not wondering whether Shrek was inspired, but the movie was inspired by or the book. I mean, it may well have by, been. Uh, but uh, but actually, whether like the donkey in this week's Porsche <laughs> now like speaks in the accent of Shrek's okay, donkey okay, forever, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, interesting. Uh, that could be a uh, a question for our listeners. Our listeners, to, to, to yes. To. Um, so, so, um, yeah, so, so we were sort of captivated by, by Rashi, uh, which I, I thought I thought we, we would share. Um, this this angel who is blocking the way of the donkey is described. Um, so it says, uh, so, the, um, so God is angry that Bilam actually gets up and goes. It gets up early in the morning, actually, sort of echoing mm-hmm. uh, Abraham, Abraham and to... a, like a negative valence, right? Uh, and and uh, so there's an angel is, is, is placed there to uh, to prevent the satenlo, to be a, an obstacle, to kind mm-hmm. of stop him from going. Uh, and Rashi says, 
this angel who is Lesatenlo, who is to be an obstacle to an adversary to uh, to build on his mission. Uh, Rashi is the Malach Shabrachim Haya. It was an angel of mercy. Um, Rashi tells us this angel of mercy was to stop Bilam from doing this bad thing that he shouldn't sin and then be lost uh, mm-hmm. and perish as a, an account of this grievous sin that he was about to do. And so uh, that was very evocative for us. Do you want, um, yes, yeah, explain. so I, I feel that um, often we have these goals and when things get in our way, we don't appreciate them. <laughs> we don't appreciate, I don't know, traffic. We don't appreciate complications. Um, I'm definitely a planner and, and I like it when my plan are executed flawlessly and I get even angry when they aren't and um, I think imagining that roadblocks can actually be caused by uh, a malach shal rachamim by an angel of mercy um, really helps to kind of think about those roadblocks that come up in our lives and to say was this actually um, was this failure or was this complication potentially even sent by God was it maybe even a blessing to cause me to have another minute to think about am I doing the right thing and not to say every roadblock is is for the best or you know sometimes roadblocks really can uh, can be you know bad Um, but 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 to see it as at least a potential opportunity for for reflection and and as even a, a message from God a merciful message from God that's going to to give us an extra moment to reflect and, and think about our plans and whether we're we're actually doing the right thing good and and also not just when we experience the roadblocks it also teaches us how what the role we can play in the lives of other people this is a point that uh, I, I saw um, expressed by uh, Daniel Lifshitz that um, in our intention and our really uh, calling to be a source of rachamim to mm-hmm. other people, that sometimes means helping them achieve their goals, and sometimes it means intervening and trying to stop them from achieving their goals. That also might be the most merciful thing we can do for another person. I think that also is uh, a really valuable lesson to kind of take with us. Like I, I, I want to be a source of rachamim to the world around me, to the other people in my life, and that doesn't always mean encouraging and and helping. Um, it sometimes it means foiling. Foiling, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So as we're recording this episode, it's been raining a lot in Chicago, um, and you know, rain on days when you can drive, okay, so you can you can get around and not get so wet. But what about on Shabbat when you're walking? Um, you know, rain can be really annoying. Yeah, so we have raincoats uh, to, and ponchos to it's help true. us uh, stay dry. Uh, even and and when I think boot wearing is uh, also a nice way to keep our feet dry. I actually think it's so great when people wear big ugly boots uh, on Shabbat in our shul because to me that is a sign of uh, like I walked here even though it's raining and even though I live may live a little bit far and even though weather's not good like I observe Shabbat and I come to shul even in bad weather and here I am mm-hmm. my boots so I, I'd be proud of your boots uh, on Shabbat <laughs> uh, you could also carry nice shoes and change when you get here if that's uh, if that's your thing but uh, boots boots are great uh, umbrellas though are really controversial in in uh, in halacha and and Seeing as we've been using them on these weekdays and seeing as we do see umbrellas sometimes in our show on Shabbat, I wanted to uh, take this opportunity to share some like information about umbrellas in, in, on Shabbat. Sure. So the Noda Behuda in the, in the 1700s in Prague uh, wrote that it's prohibited to use an umbrella. And the reason, the basic reasoning is that you can't make a tent on Shabbat. So meaning if you go camping on Shabbat, you have to build your tent before Shabbos starts. Um, and, and that actually makes sense in like a deep way connected to where we learn 
um, what milacha, what prohibited Shabbat activity is, comes from the activities used to build the Mishkan. The Mishkan was ultimately kind of a tent. (laughs) And so to say that making a tent is prohibited seems like deeply in line with where we learn all Shabbat prohibitions from. Um, And so the Nodabi would have felt that Right, that that putting up an umbrella or even taking an umbrella that's already open and just putting it over your head where it protects you from the sun or the rain um, is a is a Shabbat violation. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and yet uh, some time later, I guess maybe a generation or two later, in a Pressburg, Sam Sofer, Ramosha Sofer, he analyzed this topic and he felt that umbrellas were fundamentally permitted and uh, he compared them to. Um, the, the operation of uh, any uh, type of device which is meant to open, uh, and, open close. and close as part of its regular use, right? You would never say that closing a door is building a wall. So, too, opening an umbrella isn't building, erecting a tent. You're operating an umbrella. You're operating a door. Uh, I tell my children uh, doors are tools, not toys. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you're not building a wall when you close a door. You're not building a chair when you open a folding chair. Opening and closing a folding chair, opening and closing a folding table is not, is not constructing. It's operating a device designed to be operated in this way. And Sam Sofer felt that it, umbrellas could be permitted. Nonetheless, in the centuries since he wrote those words, an overwhelming consensus of scholars who have studied the topic and maybe more importantly Jews the community the of yeah, the community of the committed like Shomer Shabbos Jews all over the world in four continents five continents I don't know six continents have uh, have not used umbrellas on, on Shabbat and uh, the position of the Yehuda, the restrictive position of the Yehuda, really has one out and that's one of the ways that we inconvenience ourselves on Shabbat we don't we uh, walk when it would be more convenient to drive and we get a little bit damp in our raincoats when it might be more convenient to uh, to use to use an umbrella. So uh, when I see somebody um, with an, a wet umbrella in Shulchan Shabbat, I have so the internal dialogue that I have in my mind is, uh, on the one hand, how can I say it's forbidden when someone as great as Ksam Sofer, one of the greatest halachic scholars of, of all time, has weighed in and said it's permissible? Uh, who am I to say that it's forbidden? It's sort of a high standard of proof, I believe, to declare something forbidden. On the other hand, this is something that, in general, Sabbath observant Jews really don't do, uh, and uh, you know, it, I think it, it's sort of, certainly um, like poor optics for our community to see so many damp umbrellas uh, in our shul. It's really not something that one expects to see in an Orthodox shul on, on Shabbat. But it is, I mean, as we've already mentioned, a, a profoundly kind of complicated area of halakha. Um, and there's things that you would think, well, if we don't use umbrellas, we also wouldn't do the following. So, for example, if your home had kind of a, an, an awning that you could pull out or retract, you might assume, well, especially if it's if I'm using that awning to protect from rain or from sun, that would be prohibited on Shabbat. But it seems like the preponderance of the huskim, uh, the halachic decisors, think that that is actually permitted on Shabbat. Because it's set up and it's there and the canopy is already up on the frame before Shabbat And it's Shabbat already maybe begins. above your head or mm-hmm. something like that before Shabbat begins. That might be another difference. Um, and and similar to that, actually, um, in a stroller, when you have kind of also a, a retractable awning, mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a stroller cover that's attached and that you can open and close, um, that too seems like it's, um, it's permitted to kind of use on Shabbat, even though it seems very similar to an umbrella. Yeah, and, and the same people who reinforce and confirm the prohibition against umbrella use say that it's permissible to um, operate a stroller canopy, a chazonish, um, in the early 20th century, and who was from Lithuania and then moved to moved to Israel. Israel. Uh, he's, he 
felt that it was, you know, having been established as a prohibition, we shouldn't tamper with that established practice about, sh- umbrellas. about umbrellas. But he looked at a stro- strollers and said, yeah, you're operating a stroller canopy is really no different than opening and closing a door that's meant to be open and closed or opening and closing a folding chair that's meant to be open and closed. A stroller canopy is meant to be open and closed, and that's not, not building anything new by opening the canopy to keep the baby out of the sun or out of the rain. So these rules about um, constructing tents um, or building in general on Shabbat, it's, it, they're actually extraordinarily complicated um, and a great resource for Shabbat questions in general. I mean, you're always, of course, welcome to approach either one of us, and if we don't know the answer offhand, we will look it up and get <laughs> that to you. Um, but a great resource that really anyone can use is there's a great set of books called the 39 Melochos, uh, M-E-L-O-C-H-O-S. Um, it's a it's a four-volume set written by Rabbi Ribiat, um, and they're fully in English. They're very carefully organized. The footnotes are fantastic. Uh, really, endnotes, I guess. It's like a whole other book of endnotes. I have to correct you. It, yeah. is, the, the, it is not fully in English. The, foot, the wonderful endnotes that you just praised are fully are, in Hebrew. Are fully in Hebrew. <laughs> uh. the, but, that, right. um, but, but if you're looking for something that's, that's accessible in English, I think the English here really is kind of pretty accessible. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but it does... Yeah, as with all halacha books, um, it is worth looking at a variety of books um, because many of them, um, you know, there's there's obviously a multiplicity of opinions, um, but but this is a great resource and and, and a great a great place to start. Uh, yeah, I, I would say maybe less for practical guidance, where I feel that um, either you know Shmirat Shabbat Gehilchata or a more updated version, a book like Rav Malamid's Hilchot Shabbat book, is mm-hmm. going to be a bit more user-friendly and a bit more comprehensive in terms of... And just more readable. Yeah, like, but, like, any question that I have, I can more easily and readily find an answer in those compendium, whereas Rabbi Riviat's book, what's so fun about it is it's a kind of conceptual, like, format. He goes malacha by... In other words, it's not... Like Shmirat Shabbat Kilchata is like these are the laws about being in the kitchen on Shabbat, and these right. are the laws the about toys on you know, Shabbat. Right, dealing with your children. Right, it's, very, it's not it's not by it's it's sort of organized by how you live your life. Whereas Rabbi Ribiat's book is organized um, by each of the thirty nine milachot, and he starts with very basic conceptual definition. This is what is prohibited. Here's the definition of the malacha. Here's, here's how it connects to the Mishkan, and here's how it connects. To, and then here's some pra- some uh, practical applications. So I don't think he's trying to be comprehensive. What he is doing very very effectively is presenting the kind of conceptual um, parameters and contours of the malacha as those have developed over the centuries, mm-hmm. and gives you examples of permitted, forbidden, forbidden, forbidden for each contour of the malacha's definition. So it's right. really great for, like, what is the malacha bona? Like, what is the malacha of building on Shabbat? Mm-hmm. And what, what does it entail? Uh, this, it's a great overview of that. Uh, you might then still have to look elsewhere for practical guidance for a particular question that may right. occur in your life. But if you know that something is, let's say, prohibited or permitted on Shabbat, but you're trying to understand deeply, like, mm-hmm. which of the 39 yeah. uh, categories of malacha does it attach to and why? Yes. Um, this is, the, I think, the best resource for that because you really expand. Like, you might say, oh, um, this is prohibited because of 
um, dash. Like it's threshing. This thing yeah. you do in your normal yeah. life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's actually threshing. Well, why is that? Like yes. I'm not threshing. Yes. Yes. So he'll he'll explain how you get from threshing to this idea of something that's encased in something else, taking it out. Yeah. Um, and why that relates to your sponge, uh, yes. for example. <laughs> um, I think I actually get a lot of people here ask a lot of conceptual Shabbat questions. Mm-hmm. Like I know this is prohibited. Can you explain yes. why? Yes. Um, yes. And and this book really really is a strong recommend for for the, those specific types of questions. Yes. And the shul currently has a copy uh, in, in the library on, on the main floor of the shul, across from the offices. Okay, we are interviewing our vice president of house, Daniel. Well, why don't you tell us how to pronounce your last name? Shyat. Let's all try it. Shyat. Shyat. Rhymes Daniel with try it. Yep. <laughs> wow. Much better than my high school basketball coach, who oh. said a different four-letter word to... <laughs> I didn't get in the games much, so yeah, it was just... Mm, mm, he didn't let you try it. <laughs> No. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> so tell us, how did you come to Anshay Shalom, and uh, when, and, and what brought you here? Yeah, so my sisters lived in Chicago for many years, and had a lot of friends from Minneapolis that lived in Lakeview and other parts of Chicago. My wife and I, Mindy, we lived out in D.C. for a bunch of years after meeting at University of Maryland, so Chicago was on our radar a bit, and then what, what tipped the scales was... Uh, my work brought me to Chicago. Um, I work for a consulting firm that uh, consults for nonprofit organizations, many mm. Jewish organizations. And at the time, we were working with many synagogues, and we had just secured a project to work with 12 or 13 different Chicago synagogues, oh, cool. um, surveying their membership. And Anshay Shalom was, was a congregation that had very high marks uh their members were very happy and uh i was kind of like and then i was able to driven synagogue decision yep exactly so it was we try to be data driven in the shy house yeah wow okay so do you bring that data driven attitude towards uh the house of the synagogue i i I try to uh i need to do it a bit more (laughs) um we have some ideas i uh yeah, there's, you know, you balance the line of, of transparency. Sometimes I don't always, I'm not always so forward that I'm the house VP in fear of getting a rush of people coming at me oh, saying, yeah. you know, <laughs> fix this, fix that. But uh, but now you know, anyone listening to the podcast, <laughs> come find me. And uh, yes, we're, we're trying to be smart around where we invest our, our house dollars and make sure we're being responsive to the community and also forward thinking where possible. What, what do you think are the, the number, I don't know, one, two, and three biggest house-related issues the show is facing right now? We need to take care of the roof. So that's one. That's one. Exactly. <laughs> is the roof on fire? No, the roof's not on fire, <laughs> thankfully. There's just a couple of leaks here and there that like Maybe to show the themselves. Maybe opposite of on fire. Yep. So. <laughs> so people, do you want to speak to you because there's water dripping on them in shul or with any other ideas about the house or ideas about... Um, consulting or anything, where can they find you? Uh, on Shishalem, on a Shabbat, during the week, where, where can you be found? Yeah, so on Shabbat, I'm usually close to where all the action is happening. Uh, my three-and-a-half-year-old likes to sit in, in shul, so I want to make sure he has a front-row seat to uh, Torah reading and, uh, and other things that happen um, during the week. We, we live a few blocks south of Wrigley and uh, tend to work from home, but also get out to Sketchpad, which is a great place to work. Uh, One of our members at Anshay Shalom founded it, and uh, it's a great place for co-working, um, networking with other 
Jewish uh, folks and Jewish uh, organizations. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Straw Hat. As always, we're incredibly grateful to our producer, Haley Leventhal. If you have positive feedback, feel free to shoot us an email, talk to us in person, uh, send us a voice note. Any kind of communication is great. If you have negative feedback, you should send it to us via a talking donkey who speaks in Eddie Murphy's voice. That would be how we want to collect negative feedback this time around. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week.